when Emmett died, I was so, I was at a loss. I didn't know what to do. I didn't have the ambition to go back to work. I didn't, I, I was just inside myself. In fact, I was contemplating suicide. Her son was gone. His killers were free. She had risked everything to look them in the eye in the Mississippi courtroom, only to walk away with nothing. When your world falls apart, how do you pick up the pieces and move on? From ABC Audio, this is Reclaimed, the story of Mamie Till Mobley. I'm Leah wright Rigger. Episode 3, Justice. Since the day the call came that Emmett was missing, Mamie Till Mobley was without peace. In a matter of weeks, her life had completely changed shape. She could barely make sense of what it was becoming. But she understood one thing. It wasn't safe for her in Mississippi. By the time the jury returned to the courtroom with its decision, Mamie was already gone. According to her memoir, her driver didn't waste time hurrying through the Mississippi Delta. Scared someone would discover who his passenger was, Mamie said he drove without his headlights on. It was as if just being seen with Emmett's mother would bring trouble. And Mamie was frightened too. A new thought chilled her to the bone. Were these the same dark back roads Emmett had seen in his final hours? She would learn the verdict from the radio, read triumphantly by the local reporter. Innocent. J.W. Milam, innocent. Roy Bryant, innocent. The jury said the prosecution hadn't done enough to prove the body was Emmett's, but she had done everything she was supposed to do. What more proof could they need? She had forced herself to look at every inch of him, She had sworn to the court that the body was her son's, and it wasn't enough. Her word alone would never be enough in that Mississippi courtroom. Mamie Till Mobley barely had time to process the jury's decision. Outrage about what had happened to Emmett was raising the temperature all over the country. Black and white, from New York to Oakland, there were plenty who believed her and they wanted to hear what she had to say. She had something a lot of people didn't have. Yeah. Gumption. (laughs) I'll use that term. That's Amos Smith, Mamie Till Mobley's cousin. He watched her transform from a doting mother into a crusader. And when Mamie started speaking publicly about Emmett, people wanted to help. Immediately afterwards, uh, Mamie... uh, started a somewhat of a revolution, okay? Um, Many, many people, black, white, yellow, green, I don't care what color, sent Mamie money, uh, basically to say, I'm sorry, this is going to help you get over it. What Mamie said, and how she said it, resonated with people, despite her lack of experience with public speaking. Through her haze of grief, Mamie had been transformed, 
She was something else now. Someone who moved through the world differently. There was a fire inside her that felt new, but perhaps had been set alight long before. On her first date with Lewis, she'd watched him ignore the rules of segregation at Berg's drugstore. He had wanted to sit down and eat in the booth, so he did. An act of defiance over a banana split. Perhaps it had taught her all she needed to know. That if you stand your ground, the reward is worth the fight. She'd been nervous back then, needing Lewis to take the lead. But now, it was all up to her. Mamie had walked, without knowing it, into the center of a movement, a powder keg waiting for a match. This was a time of transition in America. While Jackie Robinson was playing alongside white teammates at Ebbets Field, activists in the South, like Lamar Smith, were being murdered for encouraging Black voters to register. The NAACP had been fighting for equality for more than four decades. Most of it was below the radar of the public's knowledge. But in 1954, one year before Emmett Till's death, they won a landmark case, Brown versus Board of Education. It would pave the way for schools across the South to desegregate, but it also inflamed tensions between activists and segregationists. Attacks on Black people were brazen and frighteningly common. Isaac Woodard, a veteran returning to his home in North Carolina, was beaten and blinded by police for asking for a bathroom break on a bus. Harry and Harriet Moore, who were civil rights activists in Florida, were killed by a bomb placed under their house. And not all the harm that was being done made it on the front page. Black farmers were being forced into cycles of debt to white landowners. Voter intimidation was rampant. And there was an ever-present threat of violence and lynching. For every case that civil rights groups took on, there were hundreds more that went unanswered. All of it are stories that essentially lead nowhere other than people telling them, hoping for justice and having to accept that justice was not coming or was too long delayed. Khalil Muhammad is a professor of history, race and public policy at Harvard University. He's seen the mountains of letters that were sent to local NAACP chapters during this time, sounding the alarm about the harassment and intimidation endured by Black people across the country. That's really just a testament to how steep the mountain was for the civil rights organizations of that time period to have to climb, to, to really find the resources, time, manpower, and, and effort to uh, bring justice for everyone. This was before the Civil Rights Act, before the March on Washington, before I Have a Dream. America's eyes were firmly closed to its own prejudice. But when Mamie Till Mobley showed Emmett's body to the world, something shifted. Having a court case for a lynching was radical. For a young Black woman to accuse white Southern men of a crime in front of the national press, well, that, that was revolutionary. 
Within 48 hours of the verdict in Mississippi, she was addressing crowds of thousands in Harlem. In just one month, she spoke in 33 cities across 19 states. Here she is speaking to a crowd in Cleveland in September 1955. She looks regal, standing tall with glittering jewelry around her neck. You can tell she's a little nervous. She has to be told to shuffle closer to the microphone. Thanks to the... To the high officials that we have here today, and my greatest respects to you people that have come out here to see what we're talking about and see what we're doing and what we're trying to do. I think that she would like to... It didn't take long for her to find her voice, and she became a powerful public speaker. For Mamie Till Mobley, talking about Emmett was like opening a pressure valve. It was her way of processing the grief that filled her heart. It was too much pain, too much anger for one person to bear alone. She needed to talk about him almost as much as the world needed to hear it. In return, she felt they were saying something back. That they cared about Emmett. That they cared about her. After the hostile crowds in Mississippi, their applause was like cool water on a hot day. But Mamie Till Mobley quickly became stretched thin. Emmett had been taken in August. The trial was in September. And by October, she was on an almost daily speaking schedule, constantly bearing her pain to thousands. Everyone wanted a piece of her, from civil rights groups to labor unions. Mamie Till Mobley needed help. She needed to streamline her schedule and only put her energy towards events that were worthy. So she met with the NAACP in New York. To her relief, they agreed that they would manage her speaking arrangements for her and schedule officially sanctioned speaking tours. She would even be able to collect a fee for her time. Mamie Till Mobley knew that she was part of something bigger than herself. Emmett wasn't just her son anymore. He was a symbol. For some, he represented the harsh truth of existing while black in America. For white Southerners, like J.W. Milam and Roy Bryant, he was a dangerous precedent of black confidence. But either way, a mirror had been held up to a nation and something ugly stared back. When the jury in Mississippi returned with their verdict, a battle was lost. Mamie Till Mobley had to make sure they won the war. And so, Mamie's work continued at breakneck speed. By the middle of October, she was in Washington, D.C., where, as usual, crowds of thousands had gathered to hear her speak. She hoped to make some headlines, perhaps even encourage some politicians to meet with her. But on that day, as Mamie Till Mobley prepared for her big speeches, she was blindsided. While Mamie was doing her best to keep America's eyes fixed on what had happened to her son, it would be Emmett's father who made front-page news. On October 14th, three weeks after the verdict, the military record of Lewis Till was leaked to the Southern press. 
When the judge gave Lewis Till a choice of going to jail or joining the army, he had chosen the army. It might have taken him far from his problems with Mamie Till Mobley, but no distance at all from Jim Crow. The army was as segregated as American society. Many black soldiers found themselves fighting fascism on one side and racism on the other. It was reported that Lewis Till had been killed while serving in Europe, and a comparison had been drawn about the injustice of it all. That a father was killed fighting overseas for American ideals of freedom and equality, and his son had been killed at home for the color of his skin. But when Lewis Till's record was revealed in the Southern newspapers, it said something very different. It showed that he had not been killed in combat at all. Instead, it showed that he had been executed by the U.S. Army. They had accused him of raping two white women in Italy and murdering a third. Lewis Till was on trial with one friend, and and both men were convicted of of murder and rape and sentenced to be hanged. And they were hanged July 2nd, 1945. Author John Edgar Weidman wrote extensively about Lewis Till in his book Writing to Save a Life and about the parallels between Lewis and Emmett's lives. In the summer of 1944, Louis Till was stationed in Civitavecchia, a historic town on the central Italian coast. Till and his friends had a night off. They were drinking. They sat around. They drank half the night. And they were just looking to get into some trouble. A night off. Let's do something. So Louis Till and his friends went out, enjoyed themselves. It was a warm summer night in Italy, and they were young men far from home. There was a part of town that many GIs went to blow off steam. The soldiers, black and white, would drink there and flirt with local women. But by sunrise the next day, it was clear that something terrible had happened. Two women had been sexually assaulted, and another had been killed. And it just so happened, once all those events came to light and they were being investigated... While that was going on, Lewis Till and a couple of his friends happened to be in the prison already. They were in police custody, accused of something far less sinister, stealing supplies to sell on the black market. According to John, they had been heading for a fine, maybe some time in prison for their racketeering charges. But when Lewis Till's friend, a man named James Thomas, was questioned by the police, they used the events of the night to apply some extra pressure. John Edgar Weidman says they played a little good cop, bad cop. They told James Thomas, we think you might have had something to do with the rape and murder case. Why don't you just admit to selling things on the black market and we'll let the other stuff slide. Tell us which one of your friends helped you. You'll get off easier. He squealed on, on the other guys and not only involved them in the black marketing, but said, it wasn't me who did the rape. It wasn't me who did the shooting. They did. And so James Thomas was eventually released, and it was Lewis Till who was court-martialed for rape and murder. At the trial, 
the witnesses did not identify Lewis as the person who committed the crimes. The only thing they said in court was that the men they saw were black. John Edgar Wideman says that, for the Army, this was enough evidence. Guilty or not, they were the wrong color in the wrong place at the wrong time. Till pleaded not guilty, but the all-white jury sentenced him to be hanged. He received the, the process he was due as a black American at that time, which was no process, no justice. In France, about an hour east of Paris, there's a cemetery for American soldiers, 6,000 honorable dead, killed in a foreign war, each grave marked by a white marble cross. But just across the road, there is another graveyard. These graves have no marble crosses. There's just a neat lawn with flat markers that have numbers on them instead of names. Plot E, where Lewis Till is buried, grave number 73. It was a special plot where people who had been dishonorably discharged were buried and, and, and executed by the United States Army. There are 96 bodies in that plot. 83 of them are people of color. The men buried in Plot E are American soldiers who fought in Europe during World War II and were convicted by military courts for crimes of rape or murder. When Mamie Till Mobley got the telegram telling her Lewis had died in 1945, she knew there was something wrong. And it wasn't as though she hadn't tried to find out what had happened to him. She even had a lawyer submit a request to see his army record. It was denied. That information was confidential, they said. With a small son to raise, and without the extra money coming in from Lewis, Mamie Till Mobley didn't have the luxury of time to spend chasing the truth. And now, at the worst possible moment, the truth had resurfaced. This top secret, sealed military record was leaked to the Southern press by pro-segregation sympathizers within the government. Senator, you say that segregation in the South is not a matter of prejudice or caprice, but a vital measure to protect the white race. No, to protect both races. To protect both races. That's James Eastland, U.S. Senator from Mississippi in 1955. This is an interview he did with CBS around that time. You, are you suggesting that I'm the suggesting Negro in the South that wants segregation I, too? Oh, but certainly. The Negro in the South wants segregation. 99%. Yes, sir. It's pretty clear which side of the debate Senator Eastland is on. He once called segregation the law of nature, and he used his power to make sure everyone knew who Emmett's father was. He wanted to show what kind of boy the Northern press was glorifying. He wanted to cast doubt on Emmett's character, and he needed Lewis's record to do it. John Edgar Wideman again. Nobody's allowed to look at it, see it. That's a, a citizen's right, American's right. But because it was 
Lewis Till, and because it was the South, and because Senator Eastland from Mississippi was a powerful man, he went to the Army Adjutant General's office and said, I want Lewis Till's Army record. And it was post-haste given to him. For Mamie Till Mobley, she had lost a precious son. But for Senator Eastland, Emmett's murder was about more than the death of one boy. It was about the freedom of two white men in his state. But more than that, releasing Lewis Till's army record was a chance for him to win a bigger political battle. The state of Mississippi was being criticized for its handling of Emmett's death. Senators like Eastland felt that the civil rights agenda was being forced on them, that their way of life was being threatened. Senator Eastland and many other Southern senators and congressmen signed the Southern Manifesto, a 1956 document written to undermine the Supreme Court's decision to desegregate schools. These senators wanted segregation to remain, so they stoked the flames of white fear, amplifying false racist stereotypes about black men. It wasn't safe to mix the races, they said, because black men just couldn't be trusted around white women. During the trial, lawyers had hinted at the same dynamic between Emma Till and Carolyn Bryant. It was a well-worn tale that many Southern politicians knew the value of. Pure dog-whistle politics. But it appealed to plenty of voters. However, there was still a glimmer of hope for Mamie Till Mobley. Amid growing national pressure, the state of Mississippi pursued a second case against J.W. Milam and Roy Bryant, this time for the lesser charge of kidnapping. The men had admitted going into the house and taking Emmett. They just said that they didn't kill him. So it meant that the Till trial, in a sense, wasn't over. There was still a possibility for justice. Three weeks after Lewis Till's record made headlines, in early November, the grand jury met in Mississippi to decide if they should go ahead with the kidnapping trial. They decided not to. And although everyone was now very aware of what justice looked like to a jury in Mississippi, many felt that the release of Lewis Till's record was the nail in the coffin for Emmett's case. The record tied Emmett to his father, a man he barely knew and couldn't remember. But being a generation apart and an ocean away from Lewis still didn't give Emmett enough space to be judged as a human in his own right. The record seemed to say, look what his father did. Why wouldn't he be capable of the same? It's the father, son, son, father, the continuity that so illustrates this case as typical of what has been the history of African-Americans in this country. It never ends. And the sins of the fathers are visited upon the sons, and upon the sons are predicted the sins of the fathers. The news that J.W. Milam and Roy Bryant wouldn't be tried for kidnapping couldn't have come at a worse time for Mamie Till Mobley. She could feel her relationship with the NAACP faltering. 
the organization that had lent her strength and inspiration was beginning to pull away. Some newspapers framed the Lewis Till scandal as an embarrassment for the NAACP. But the final straw came in early November, just a few days before the jury decided not to go ahead with the kidnapping trial. Of all things, it was about money. Mamie Till Mobley was booked to go on a two-week NAACP speaking tour of the West Coast and asked for extra funds to bring her father with her. In her memoir, Mamie said that the request touched a nerve with Executive Secretary Roy Wilkins. According to Mamie, he had reservations about her from the start, believing her to be using the organization for her own benefit. When she called to ask about an additional fee, Roy Wilkins thought his fears had come true. He severed their relationship, but would later condemn Mamie's request for payment to the press, saying the NAACP simply did not operate on a commercial basis. It was embarrassing for Mamie, but it was more than that. It took her away from the movement she'd come to rely on. If she couldn't talk to people, tell her story, what would she do? She wrote to Roy Wilkins, apologizing, asking for a second chance, earnestly affirming that she believed in the mission. In her letter, Mamie wrote, The objective of the NAACP is of much greater concern to me than my pocketbook. It didn't do any good. She was out. But what Mamie Till Mobley started, somebody else would finish. A few weeks later, there was a gathering in a church in Montgomery, Alabama. Dr. T.R.M. Howard, a prominent civil rights activist, spoke to the crowd. He knew Mamie. During the trial, he had opened his home to Emmett's legal team and members of the Black press. Thanks to his generosity, Mamie Till Mobley was given a safe space in Mississippi. Dr. T.R.M. Howard had seen her bravery close up. And now he spoke powerfully about the injustice of what was done to her son. In the packed meeting hall, Rosa Parks was listening. Rosa Parks was a longtime activist with the NAACP, working as their chapter secretary in Montgomery. She had seen countless cases of violence against her community be swept under the rug. Suddenly, there was a wind change. She sensed that there was a moment to be seized. Four days later, exactly 100 days after Emmett was murdered, she refused to give up her seat on the bus. December 1st, 1955, about two months later, she has told me that one of the reasons she refused to give up her seat, she was thinking about Emmett. She was thinking of my son and wondering why do they treat us the way they do? Later, people would call Rosa Parks the mother of the civil rights movement. In 
For Mamie, it was all bittersweet. She had set off the chain reaction that would shape the future of America, but was forced to watch it unfold from a distance. At the March on Washington in 1963, held on the anniversary of Emmett's death, it felt like everyone was there. Mamie Till Mobley watched it on television. The momentous wave of civil rights that would sweep the nation would carry on without her. It had been less than six months since she waved goodbye to Emmett at the station, but the world had changed. Mamie Till Mobley had been thrown into a tornado and somehow emerged on the other side, battered and bruised, and somehow no further forward. The pain was still there, but now there was no way to express it, no extra help to lift her heavy heart. It was almost more than she could bear. And then, in January of 1956, a new edition of Look magazine was published. Under the headline of The Shocking Story of Approved Killing in Mississippi was the confession of J.W. Milam and Roy Bryant. In an interview, for which they were reportedly paid $4,000, they laid out the events of the night of August 28th. To Mamie's horror, they were given an unchallenged platform to describe the night her son was murdered. Because of a provision in the law called double jeopardy, they couldn't be prosecuted for the same crime twice. Since they had been safely acquitted of murder, the two men were able to describe how and why they killed Emmett Till. Here's Khalil Muhammad again. What is just remarkable is that they define themselves as reasonable men. They position themselves as the victims of Emmett Till. They say, and I don't buy any of it, they say that they just wanted to scare the boy. They just wanted to give him a beating, a little pistol whipping, show him this precipice where they might throw him off 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 the precipice into the Tallahatchie River, but they had no plans to do so. But everything they tried to do, this tough Negro, and I want to use the other word, just wouldn't relent, wouldn't accept responsibility, wouldn't back down. He kept insisting that you can't scare me. You're not going to do anything to me. This doesn't hurt me. So they're playing into this racist fantasy that this 14-year-old boy is a giant who's impervious to pain. It's just incredible. They told a tale that often accompanies the killing of a young Black man. It's a twisted narrative, one that makes the victim responsible for his own death, a post-mortem character assassination. And it still happens today. When Trayvon Martin was killed... Before his killer was even arrested, people talked about how he got suspended from school and whether the fact that he wore a hoodie made him seem threatening. When Emmett's killers described his last moments, they said he wasn't just unafraid of them, he was downright arrogant, that he boasted of being with white women even in the moments before his death. 
The implication was he had it coming. Milam is quoted as saying directly in response to Emmett's defiance, right? The tortured victim is so defiant. He says, well, what else could we do? He was hopeless and I'm no bully. I never heard an N-word in my life. I like N-words in their place. I know how to work them. But I just decided it was time a few people got put on notice. As long as I live and can do anything about it, N-words are going to stay in their place. N-words aren't going to vote where I live. If they did, they control this government. They ain't going to go to school with my kids. And when an N-word gets close to mentioning sex with a white woman, he's tired of living. I'm likely to kill him. They may have made the decision to murder Emmett by themselves but they were made bold by the rhetoric of the time. The politicians' language around race bolstered their belief that they had the right to kill a black boy for stepping a toe out of line. Mamie Till Mobley was haunted by Emmett's last moments. The Emmett she raised would have never acted that way, she thought. She had taught him to believe in himself, but in the face of such danger... He wouldn't have stared down two grown men. He would have been calling for his mama. She tried to clear her son's name with a million-dollar libel suit. Emmett wasn't the boy they described, and Mamie knew that better than anyone. But in the end, the suit was dropped. Libel was a charge that could only be brought by the person being defamed, and Emmett wasn't there to defend himself. Mamie Till Mobley tried to move forward with her life and found that she couldn't. She was stuck, like grief was quicksand, and the more she struggled, the further she sank. In her memoir, she talks about other people's expectations, that people have the best intentions, but after a certain point, they want to see you move on. One winter afternoon in early 1956, she was alone in the house. It was quiet. No more Emmett running around, playing pranks. She sat alone at her dining table and asked the empty room a question. What should I do? And the answer came quickly. A thought appeared, as natural as breathing end it all. Mamie Till Mobley got up and walked over to the window. And I said, now, if I jump out of this window, I'm going to fall in that stairwell and I will be smelling before they find me because nobody used the side entrance. And it was at that point that the phone rang. And Simeon Booker of Johnson Publications wanted to know, Mrs. Till, what are you going to do now? This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever wondered what you'd do with an extra hour in your day? Would you go for a run, take a nap, read a book, or maybe show up for a friend? We often find ourselves wishing for more time. But the real question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The key to squeezing that special thing into your schedule is knowing what's truly important to you and making it a priority. 
That's where therapy comes in. It's not just about dealing with problems. It's about finding what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you've tried therapy, you know how beneficial it can be. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. It's a tool for learning positive coping skills, setting boundaries, and empowering yourself to be the best version of you. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist. And the best part? You can switch therapists at any time at no additional charge. So whether it's finding that extra hour for yourself or embarking on a journey of self-discovery, therapy can be a game changer. Take the first step with BetterHelp and make your mental health a priority. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Reclaimed to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot Reclaimed. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need and the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Emmett's death cast a long shadow over Mamie. When you're in that kind of darkness, it can be hard to see where the light begins again. But on that cold winter day, as she contemplated jumping from her window, something unexpected happened. A journalist called to ask her a question. What are you going to do now? And Mamie's answer surprised even herself. I said, I'm going to school and I'm going to become a teacher. And I looked at how the world said that. That wasn't on my mind. I was shocked. And just like that, Mamie Till Mobley began to see light again. In her memoir, she says she heard many stories of how people discovered their life's purpose. She said she always had to smile when she thought about how she discovered hers. It called her, quite literally, on the phone. Emmett's cousin and favorite playmate, Wheeler Parker, had his own struggles coming to terms with what had happened. He would relive the moments when he heard Emmett being taken from their uncle's house many times over. But watching Mamie Till Mobley find her path, that gave him hope. At that time, Mamie had evolved, or she, like I always say, she took a lemon and made lemonade. She took that situation, hurt, bitter at first, and she turned around, and it did her good. It did me good. We became 
positive. By that fall, new cotton plants grew tall in Mississippi. A year had passed since Emmett's death, and Mamie Tilmobley began her studies at Chicago Teachers College. She was now 34. Her classmates were at least a decade younger than her, and school was harder than she remembered. But it gave her purpose at a time when she most needed to feel useful. Life returned to Mamie, or perhaps Mamie returned to life. She married her longtime partner, Jean Mobley. He had weathered the storms with her and would continue to provide protection and care for her for the rest of his life. And just like the honor roll student she used to be, Mamie Till Mobley excelled at her studies. She graduated cum laude in 1960 and became an elementary school teacher. She would teach generations of Chicago public school students how to read and write, how to see the world, how to belong in it. Here's Mamie's cousin, Ollie Gordon. That's why she always said, God took my only, but he gave me millions. Because she saw the the children in the world as her children to protect them, to teach them. Uh, She developed a group called the Emmett Till Players, where uh, she taught them to do oratory speaking from Dr. King and various other people. Uh, And she would get the the children that uh, was going in the wrong direction or had some kind of disability or something in the home. And she would take these kids and mold them and teach them these speeches with all this pride. And then that gave them pride and made them feel like, okay, I'm somebody. In the place of Emmett, Mamie Till Mobley poured her love into other children. Boys and girls that could grow up confident, self-assured. Boys and girls that would get to grow old. There's an expression that Martin Luther King Jr. used in his famous letter from Birmingham jail. Justice delayed is justice denied. For half a century, the legal system left the case of Emmett Till untouched. Then, in 2004, the Department of Justice reopened the case, briefly, to see if any new evidence had come to light. As part of this investigation, they exhumed Emmett's body and took DNA samples. This proved once and for all that the body pulled from the Tallahatchie River was undeniably Emmett. During the trial, J.W. Milam and Roy Bryant's lawyers said that it could be anyone. They even implied that Emmett might be hiding out somewhere, safe and sound. The DNA test confirmed what Mamie had always known. A few years later, there was another FBI investigation. This time, it was because of a story told by a white author and historian, Tim Tyson. One day, Tim got a call from a fan who wanted to talk about his book. She wanted to talk about that. It's not really a conversation I want to have for a long time. So I was being polite. You know, Mama Mama said, be sweet. And I, but I was getting off the phone. And she could hear it in my voice. And she said, well, actually, you know, I gave your book to my mother-in-law. And it's her favorite book. And she's coming next week. And I was wondering if we could get together and have coffee. 
well, definitely not. You know, so I just pretended she hadn't said it and kept being pleasant and getting off the phone. And she said, well, you might want to, you might know about my mother-in-law. She, she was named Carolyn Bryant. Well, you know, so that was different. So I allowed us how I might be able to work that into my schedule. Carolyn Bryant had last publicly commented on Emmett Till during her husband's trial. She answered questions from Roy Bryant's defense attorney, telling the court that Emmett grabbed and whistled at her. But when the trial was over, she all but disappeared. Tim says that every five years or so, a journalist would check in on her, see if she was ready to talk, but she would never grant an interview. Now, Tim found himself being invited into her home. He said she was warm, friendly even. Yeah, it's just like every uh, Methodist church lady I ever knew, you know. She hugged me in the hallway. Then there was a piece of pound cake back in the kitchen and a cup of coffee for me. But as he stood in the hallway making conversation, Tim said Carolyn seemed to murmur something under her breath. Well, they're all dead now anyway. She's not really talking to me, but I'm right there. They, they, uh, they're all dead now. I guess they're all dead now. Tim would later claim that he hadn't turned on his recording equipment and only had a notebook nearby to frantically scribble what he was hearing. And then, uh, you know, that's when she, she talked about, you know, the story about Emmett Till and her and putting her, his hands on her and stuff. She said, that part's not true. And she said, uh, nothing that boy did could ever justify what happened to him. She said, you tell these stories until they become real. They feel real. She said, but, but uh, that part's not true. For Emmett's family... Carolyn's apparent confession felt like a moment they had been longing for. Wheeler Parker again. When I heard that, I was probably one of the happiest guys in the... I'm, I'm still the happiest man in the world, but I said, man, I'm finally getting what I want to hear. She lied on Emmett. She lied on Emmett, and uh, I said, wow, that's what I need to hear. That, that kind of give, give me a, a feeling of... Uh, um, closure. Closure. The words spoken by Carolyn in the courtroom had weighed on the family for decades. Now, with a few short sentences, their power could be undone. Tim Tyson's story seemed to suggest she was now ready to make amends, to make things right. But Carolyn disagreed. And then all of a sudden, boom, I didn't say that. You know, she said she didn't say it. Carolyn denied ever suggesting the story she told in court wasn't true. Tim says he knows what he heard. Based on Tim's story, the FBI tried to find new evidence to prove that Carolyn lied in court. Wheeler Parker says that this was movement, perhaps some baby steps in the right direction. Having lived to be 82, the progress is that this time the FBI investigated. That's progress. If not enough, 
is not fast enough, but they're not going to ever get that quick, quick change. He was there at the Bryant store that day. In fact, he and Carolyn are now the only two people left alive to remember what happened there firsthand. Wheeler Parker is also the only surviving witness to Emmett's abduction. In spite of this, he says no one asked for his side of the story for a long time. You know, it's mind-boggling because of all the stories and things that were told that happened at the store. And there's so many different versions, and I was not interviewed about that until 30 years later. None of us was interviewed about it, but stories were written by people who were not there, and stories told by people who were not there. Emmett Till's life and death belong to the world. And as every voice rose up to speak about what happened, the people whose story should have been heard, the people closest to it, were left out. Truth, just like lies, can be slippery. To understand it, you have to really pin it down, get a good look at it from every angle. It's about perspective. With these investigations, the FBI was finally asking the family for theirs. However, Tim's scribbled notes were incomplete, and he had no audio recordings to back them up. The FBI determined that no new charges could be brought against Carolyn Bryant, and they once again closed the case file of Emmett Till. Mamie Till Mobley didn't live long enough to see the DNA results confirm her testimony or hear Tim's story about Carolyn. She died without seeing justice for her son's murder, but lived long enough to see his name become part of American history. She kept Emmett's name alive right up until the end, writing a memoir with Chris Benson. It has a fitting title. It's called Death of Innocence. Her cousin, Ollie Gordon, looked after her as she got older. She had uh, diabetes, and her sight had deteriorated, had been compromised, and she was also on dialysis. But she was still going and speaking, and uh, the day in which she passed away, she was scheduled to leave that next morning uh, to go, and I'm not sure where, I don't remember where, to speak. On January 6, 2003, Mamie Till Mobley died of heart failure. Her funeral reflected the giant presence she had in life. Thousands of people packed into a church on the south side of Chicago, celebrating her and mourning her in equal measure.
the Reverend Jesse Jackson, an icon of the civil rights movement, gave the eulogy. One. Today our hearts are heavy yet He talked about Mamie Till Mobley's bravery and sacrifice, but also her grace and kindness. What makes Sister Mamie different is that she planned to be a mother. She became a freedom fighter. At her funeral, the two worlds she inhabited came together. She wasn't a mother or an activist. She was both. Maybe six months, a year before she passed away, she looked at me one day and she said, Ollie, I wish you could see me through the eyes of other people and see me the way they saw. Because I think she realized that to me, she was just Mamie. She was my Mamie. She was my keeper. She was, and I didn't see her as that great activist. I didn't see her through the eyes of other people until she passed. And then it clicked when I had to take the task of trying to make sure that she was given a proper service. And uh, when the world started to calling and the president started calling, then it snapped. This is what she was trying to tell me. Mamie Till Mobley was laid to rest in Burr Oak Cemetery in Illinois, a short walk across the grass from her son. Her headstone reads, Her pain united a nation. The grass is long around her grave. People visit her sometimes, and Emmett too. On the 60th anniversary of Emmett's death, a 70-car motorcade snaked through the residential neighborhood next to the cemetery. One by one, the cars emptied, and their passengers walked across the flat graveyard to Emmett's grave. It's marked by a small plaque and a brass oval locket. If you swing open the cover of the locket, inside is a picture of Emmett, dressed to the nines on his last Christmas with his mother. The crowd that gathered at the cemetery was filled with Emmett Till's family. Wheeler Parker was there, and so was Ollie Gordon. Also in the crowd were people who never knew Emmett, but had something in common with Mamie Till Mobley. They were mothers of children taken before their time. These women, who have all lost black children, are members of a group called Mothers of the Movement. Their children died in different circumstances, some at the hands of law enforcement or by a stranger with a gun. Their journeys are different, and the depths of grief can never be quantified or compared. But this group of women share a feeling, a feeling that their children were denied justice. And, just like Emmett Till, their children's names have all been headlines. Sandra Bland, Michael Brown, Eric Garner, Trayvon Martin. Mamie Till Mobley hoped that her story would one day belong in the past. She could accept the impossible truth 
that her son had died and the men who killed him would walk free if it were part of a bigger plan. God had taken her son, she thought, so that other people's sons might live. Sadly, there would be so many more Emmets. But Mamie's lasting gift to mothers carrying the same grief was to show them how powerful their voices could be. You can't help your son or daughters, but you certainly can help other children. And so that's why- At that point, God led me on a journey to help other moms. Because you have a nation of people that are crying out for help, and then you feel like you have to get up and fight. It's too late for our children. So we have to start now. Don't wait to tragedy knock on the door. These mothers know, as Mamie Till Mobley did, that justice is not guaranteed for children like theirs. But they also know that they'll keep fighting until it is. Mamie showed them how. From the moment Emmett was born, she would have done anything for him. All that she ended up accomplishing? That was for all of us. This episode touches on the difficult subject of self-harm. If you are struggling with thoughts of suicide or worried about a friend or loved one, help is available. Call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Reclaimed, the story of Mamie Till Mobley, is a production of ABC Audio and a companion podcast to the ABC News docuseries, Let the World See, which is streaming on Hulu. Written and produced by Lakia Brown, Susie Liu, Carrie Ann Thomas, and Madeline Wood, with help from Marwa Mowaki and Iru Ekpunobi. Music and mixing by Evan Viola. Jean Marie Condon of Cobble Hill Films and Fatima Curry are story consultants. They were also the directors of Let the World See. Our executive producer is Liz Alessi. Special thanks to Josh Cohan, Elizabeth Russo, Ariel Chester, and Stacia Deshishku. If you haven't already, subscribe to this podcast and let us know what you think with a rating and a review. We've got the exclusive view behind the table. What is happening here? It's just beautiful chaos. Every day, right after the show, while the topics are still hot, the ladies go deeper into the moments that make the view the view. To be honest, I was thinking about asking him for a foot massage, and then I I just froze. This is the best gig on TV. And you know anything can happen. That is what we do here. I'm not going to lie, the chair's a little small for my behind. (laughs) (laughs) The View's Behind the Table podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.